And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it is Thursday, the second best day of the week. Of course, Michael Leibowitz is going to join us today. Not via Skype like usual. No, he's live in studio today with me. So uh, I don't know what that means. It'll be the same show we always do on Thursday, but he'll actually be here in person. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So there you go. Anyway, uh, we'll get into that here in just a few minutes. Uh, let's catch up with the markets, of course. Uh, this is kind of the, the big thing that's been going on, you know, as we get ready to kind of wrap this, you know, this month is already creeping by. Can you believe it's already the 7th of December? Right, Christmas just right around the corner. A couple of weeks here, uh, Santa Claus will be here, and of course, that's what everybody's hoping for—is the big Santa Claus rally at the end of the year. But markets kind of keep just hanging in there, as we kind of just, uh, you know, not really any news to drive markets one way or the other right now. No earnings to speak of. Um, we talked about, you know, previously that this is the time of the year that markets kind of struggle here a bit, just because of. You're, you know, you have just kind of mutual fund distributions and we had a very big rally in November. And as we've talked about, you know, it's just as the market either needed to correct or consolidate. And we've just been consolidating now uh, for, for really the last couple of weeks. We really haven't made much progress in, in really any, any direction at all. It's just kind of been flatlined. So, you know, that's been good news. I mean, uh, obviously bonds have done well here over the last couple of weeks, but market's just kind of holding in here. So that's a positive thing. Uh, if we can continue this, this process now, you know, how do you work off overbought conditions? This is always the, the big concern. Market's certainly very overbought. We're on a sell signal. And, you know, normally when you say that, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, we're gonna have this big sell off in markets. That's not, that's not what that means. Markets can work off an overbought condition either either by correcting, you know, going lower in price, or just by going sideways and letting moving averages catch up to the markets. And right now, so far, we've just been kind of doing the consolidation thing. Nothing wrong with that. Actually, that's kind of bullish because we have buyers and sellers kind of meeting in the middle and uh, keeping prices, you know, where they are. So if we continue this for another week or so, that's going to work off that overbought condition. Or if we do finally get a correction of some sort, the, the longer we consolidate before you get that correction, the shallower that correction will need to be. So again, we may not get much of a pullback here. So if you're waiting for an opportunity to you know, buy something really cheap, you really may not get that opportunity. You may have to buy things about where they are right now, but that'll be okay because after working through this process, then the entry point, the risk reward at that level, will, even though it's the same price, will be better than it was previously. So again, I know that can be a little bit confusing, but that's just kind of the way the markets work. Um, outside of that today though, we are getting ready to wrap up the week. Today we have uh, jobless claims reports out this morning. You know, won't, those won't take a lot of stage, but tomorrow of course is the big employment number and that's what everybody's gonna be focused on. Won't be surprised today if markets don't do a whole lot in one direction or the other in advance of that report, because if that report is very strong, that would certainly suggest that maybe the Fed has to remain more aggressive and that reverses this recent decline in yields and puts pressure on the stock market. Um, you know, if, if the number comes in a lot weaker than expected, that could bode well for stocks on Friday as, you know, expectations are that rate cuts will come sooner. 
So we'll see. But again, tomorrow's going to be that big number. And then on Wednesday of next week, we have the next FOMC meeting, and that's where we'll hear from Jerome exactly what they're thinking. Uh, expectations are right now that, of course, they, they may change their language somewhat to, to be more specific about, hey, we're done hiking rates and, you know, we're, we're just going to kind of wait things out, let the lag effect do the work. There's, that's what markets have been kind of hoping for, and that's why yields have been dropping. We were at below 4.2% yesterday on the 10-year yield, down from 5. So that's a very sharp decline in yields in a very short term as expectations now are pulling forward that the Fed will cut rates uh, sooner than later. We'll talk about that, that some more with that with uh, Michael Leibowitz this morning. I did want to spend a few minutes this morning um, going over a couple of other markets and things that are going on. So here's what you need to know before the bell. Um, let's take a look at what was happening with the VIX. The volatility index is very interesting here because just a couple of, of, of just a month ago, right in October, volatility was rising. There was lots of concern about super bearish, you know, outcomes, and you know, we were just going to be in the new bear market, and it was all over. And you know, we were writing that, hey, you know, volatility here had gotten very extended, and we were looking for a reversal beginning in November, and that would coincide with a rally in the market. And man, what a rally we got. But take a look at the sharp drop-off in volatility. I mean, volatility just evaporated uh, almost overnight. And now we're getting to the point, as we've been talking about here, that you know we need, either need a consolidation or a correction. Volatility has just turned up onto a buy signal. Uh, that suggests that we may get a push higher in the next week or so um, in volatility, lower asset prices, higher volatility. Now, again, you need something to trigger that. So again, is that the employment report? Is, is the Fed going to say something? Who knows? You need something to trigger that move higher. The question is just what is it going to be? What piece of news item is going to be? But that's worth paying attention to, again, if you're really long equities here, uh, if you've got a lot of risk on your books, that very low level of volatility is going to reverse at some point and tends to reverse you know, fairly quickly. So just, just be aware of that. Oil prices are another thing that have really kind of grabbed attention here uh, lately as oil prices have continued just to decline. Now remember, back in October, we were talking about oil prices were very overbought, very extended. We had reduced our oil positions at that point, suggested that we we're going to get a correction uh, in oil prices. At that time, we'd suggested that oil prices correct back to about 75. We got there. Uh, we actually broke below 70 yesterday. So again, oil prices now getting very oversold. Uh, we're about two standard deviations below the moving average, very oversold here, still on a sell signal at the moment. But this is a good setup here for a reversal in oil prices. Um, again, probably won't happen in the month of December. But again, once we start getting into January, February, we get into a seasonally strong, stronger period for oil prices. So we may see a, a uptick in oil prices. But right now, this has been pushing downward on expected inflation. Obviously, oil prices relate to the economy. So this also suggests that the economy is, is doing a little bit weaker as well. And that's being reflected in some of the recent economic reports. Um, if we take a look at Bitcoin, that's also been another thing that's been in the news a lot lately. <laughs> um, you know, as soon as Bitcoin rallies, you start getting all these headlines out that, uh, you know, Bitcoin's going to 100,000. This is its moment. It's back. It's going to replace, you know, fiat currencies, blah, blah, blah. It's going it's it's to cure everything. Whatever your belief is, it's fine. But technically, Bitcoin is very overbought. We're three standard deviations above the long-term moving average. Very overbought on a MACD basis. 
Um, so again, if you've been long Bitcoin here from you know kind of these lower levels, uh, great opportunity to take a little bit of profit. Look for a pullback probably into the mid 30s. Um, as maybe the, the next kind of entry point for Bitcoin. But again, don't get too excited about this rally. It's, it's been a great rally here, very speculative in nature. Again, you know, the whole asset class is, is pretty much just a speculative bet on, you know, who owns what and who's selling and who's buying. There's not a lot of fundamentals here, but if we take a look at kind of a long-term graph, um, it hasn't done a lot relative to where it was previously. So you've got a lot of ground to cover uh, to get just back to where you were, where a lot of people had gotten caught into this back in 2021-ish and then through 2022, really kind of got trapped at these lower levels. So this is really the first opportunity that a lot of these people that got trapped at these lower levels in Bitcoin, they've got the first opportunity to get out. So again, this rally will probably fail here and you're going to get a pullback uh, to some lower levels. So if you're looking to trade Bitcoin, you're likely going to have a much better entry point somewhere between 30 and 35,000 on Bitcoin, um, you know, sooner rather than later. So that's what you need to know before the bell. We'll come back, pick up with Michael Leibowitz live in studio today. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome to the show this morning. Welcome back. Live in studio with me, Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Great to be here in person. Yeah, no. Well, Live. I don't know about that. It's early in the morning. <laughs> you could be sleeping. It you could be better. You know, if you were at home, you'd be sleeping in an extra hour. So Exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, welcome to the studio. Glad to have you here. Um, lots of stuff to get into this morning. I, 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 you know, obviously we need to talk about the bond market just because you're here and, and, you know, that's kind of your and thing. And we talk about it and every week. we talk about it every week. But, <laughs> you know, so we, we can start there just to kind of give everybody an update. I mean, yields have come down sharply. We were 5%, you know, back in at the end of October. We were at 5%. Market selling off. Um, you know, lots of concern about, you know, resurgence in inflation. And, of course, oil prices were much more elevated at that point. Talks about, you know, this was where we were just having this issue with, you know, Israel and Hamas and, you know, oil prices are going to go to 150 now because of this this issue, and of course, that's that's suggesting higher inflation, so that's leading to higher bond yields. And in a month, this is completely reversed. Uh, oil prices are below 70 today, super big reversal there, and bond yields have gone from 5% to below 4.2% yesterday. Yesterday we closed at 4.15 ish, something right. like that. So, yeah. um, a big reversal here. You know, is is you know, is this is this just a flash in the pan? Do you think, or is this now starting to reflect maybe some of the economic fundamentals as well? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I think it's the fundamentals. So the problem with bonds, and we've talked a lot about it, is that narratives have kind of taken control of price. So, you know, yields went from you know four and a quarter to five percent, you know, a couple months ago, a month ago, and they've just dropped back down to close to four percent. What's really changed? The price of oil has come down a little bit. You've had a couple slightly weaker employment reports. Not bad, just, just kind of more normal than we've seen in three years. Inflation figures have uh, 
been slightly lower than lower than expected, but still above the Fed's two percent target rate. You know, closer to three to three and a half percent. The the Treasury is still issuing a ton of debt. Massive debt issuance hasn't gone away. Uh, so I think what hap- what's happening in a bond market, and it happens in all markets, is that the narrative that was driving a trade is changing. You know, with with the employment numbers starting to uh, normalize, you know, some you know some of them are even on a weak side. ADP yesterday is actually now for the last three months slightly weaker than it was pre-pandemic and certainly during a pandemic. Um, and I think the bond market, in its own way, is starting to sniff out a recession. And again, if yields should trade where inflation is or is expected to be, yields should be much close, somewhere in the range of two to two and a half percent, because the mm. Fed keeps telling us that's where they're going to be. And the Fed is doing what it what it what they need to do to make that happen. So um, you know, I kind of feel like we're in this tug of war between the narrative, which says yield should be 5%, or some people saying, didn't Rick Santelli say like 8% yeah, or right. 10 or 12 or some some number? Yeah, there, there was, well, we had we had a lot of guys coming out, you know, that, you know, are on Wall Street going, oh yeah, yields are going to 10% and 7% and all kind of right. all over the board. And, and you and I were saying that like, that's not possible just because of, the, you know, look, if you're worried about the debt, <laughs> right, right, you know, if you want to blow up the debt market, right, push yields to 7% because everything is financed at you right. know, two and a half or three, right, right. right. If we want to go bankrupt and file for bankruptcy, <laughs> chapter 11 of the United States, yes, 10% works. But if we are a going concern, then no, 5% doesn't work. 4% right. really doesn't work. And, you know, fundamentally, it's all catching up. It, it's a very slow catch up, but it's catching up. The stimulus is leaving the system and the fundamentals are taking charge. And, uh, you know, I think that the fundamentals are winning the tug of war right now. And the narratives for now are kind of losing ground. And, you know, there may be the new narrative may be that we're going into a recession. Fed funds are pricing in the Fed cutting rates every once in a while. You know, I'll see on social media people calling for rate cuts February, March, April, that the Fed's already behind the ball on rate mm-hmm. cuts. So um, we'll call it the making of a new narrative. Right. So let's talk about that real quick, because, uh, you know, it's an, it's an interesting, you know, kind of debate that's going on. Is, is, so from Wall Street's perspective, they're like, OK, the Fed's done hiking rates. That means that, you know, if inflation gets back to 2%, the Fed's going to start cutting rates because inflation's at 2%, right? They reached their goal, so they're going to cut rates. You know, I think that's an interesting an interesting issue because if I'm the Federal Reserve, and I'm just trying to think about this from Jerome Powell's standpoint, if, if I get inflation at 2% and everything's fine, right? Stock market's doing great. Bond yields are coming down. They're, you know, say three and a half or, you know, three and a quarter and mortgage rates have come down. The housing market stabilizes because of lower mortgage rates. People go refinance their mortgages in the houses they just bought or they start buying houses because my mortgage rates are cheaper. Why would I cut rates? I, you know, I, why wouldn't I? And again, I'm, I'm at this is a question. This isn't a statement. But if I'm if I'm Jerome Powell and everything is fine, why wouldn't why would I cut rates? Why wouldn't I leave rates at five percent because everything is fine, and and save that ammo for a day where a recession does occur? And I, I think here's the answer, Lance, that if we're going to have a soft landing, mm-hmm. which is what the Fed continues to to Hope for. tell us they want, desire, <laughs> uh, 
then you have to, you can't be on autopilot. You got to manually take control of the airplane of the economy. You have to raise rates. You have to lower rates. You have to raise rates. You have to try to glide that plane in. So if the Fed truly does want a, uh, a soft landing, they really should start thinking about cutting rates now because the rate, the rate effect from what's happened over the last year and a half is going to start heavily impacting the economy more and more, the lag effect. They talk about the lag effect mm -hmm. all the time. So if you know, if you're driving a plane and you know there's a stiff headwind coming 20 miles out, you may, you know, you, you may lower the plane, you may raise the plane, you may, you're going to do things to make that plane be less bumpy. My, right. my flight in yesterday, the guy said, we're going to fly at a low altitude to try to avoid some bumps. So, so the Fed may fly at a low altitude and try to offset some of this massive headwind that they think is coming. Well, I get that. But if I do cut rates, then, like I said, you're going to start spurring, you know, loan activity for the housing market. People mm -hmm. are going to you know, refinance debt. They're going to go spend more money. Then you start getting inflationary pressures again. But if so, you, don't you don't you kind of get yourself in a box unless you really think that this economy is going to get hit hard in three or four months that you're doing things to offset that. Yep. I, and, you know, it, we, we don't know what the Fed looks at, what they see, but they clearly see something that bothers them because they haven't gone back on their mm -hmm. financial condition. You know, despite rates dropping almost a percent, the stock market rising seven, eight percent, they haven't said anything about that, which I found a little strange. Right. Uh, and again, I, and again, this is, you know, it's just, you know, kind of tossing around a topic because you know it's pretty obvious the fed's going to cut rates at this point and, and the markets are pretty much telling the fed to cut rates um it is but like i said it is going to be interesting if you don't have a recession if and, and again you know is it uh, to your point does the fed see a much weaker economic environment coming historically speaking if we go back through history and look at when the fed cuts rates they're generally late to the party generally right. you know you're already in a recession or very close to it by the time they even start cutting rates and then the impact of the recession hits markets fall and they start cutting rates more aggressively to try to offset the decline of the markets the collapse in consumer confidence etc so this would be the first time that we actually see them starting to cut rates in advance of a recessionary environment right or or, or. is this a 1995 type scenario where they did cut rates a little bit I think they did one or two rate cuts back in 1995 and then just did nothing after that. The economy was fine. Um, and then in 1998, the yield curves invert. You have long-term capital management, the Asian contagion. Then they start cutting rates more aggressively as we got into 2000, of course, then the recession, the dot-com crash. So, you know, do we have one of those periods where maybe they cut rates, uh, you know, a couple of bips just to appease the financial markets that rates have been cut and then just sit on their hands for a while? And I, I think the tough part with this, comparing it to anything really in our careers, right. is inflation. There, were, there was not really inflation in 95. The last time we had inflation, uh, we were in college right. or in high school. You, you were, you were was graduated, but I was... Uh, <laughs> let's, see, in, in 70, let's see, in 74, 75, I was in intermediate school. Yeah, intermediate school. I was still in elementary so, school. Yeah. Um, but but I think that's that's the uh, that's what makes this hard to assess from the Fed's point of view. The last thing they want to do is restoke is stoke inflation again, yeah, and get it going because they know how hard it is to put that down. So uh, you know I think that argues with what you're saying. Why cut rates? Just yeah. just let it go. I mean, look, I, I'm not making a statement. I you know if you know I you know I have no idea what the Fed's going to do. Mike and I just kind of 
you know, we live by one meeting to the next, just like everybody else does. We try to figure it out. Right. You know, we're just trying to, to, you know, kind of discuss the possibilities and probabilities of things that could maybe occur because that will have an impact on financial markets, have an impact on the bond market, obviously have an impact on the stock market. Um, stock markets, you know, heavily betting right now. A lot of this surge that we see and saw in, in uh, November, a lot of it had to do with stock buybacks. But, you know, a lot of that is also this change of attitude. And this is why yields have dropped, that the Fed has not only done hiking rates, but those rate, rate cuts are coming sooner than later. And so everybody wants to get, you know, I want to, I want to buy before the rate cuts come because historically the Fed's cutting rates and stocks do well. You got to be a little careful with that. Normally, stocks don't do well as the Fed is cutting rates because they're generally cutting rates to offset some type of recessionary, you know, impact. The markets are betting on the soft landing scenario. The Fed cuts rates. Everything is fine. So why not buy stocks? We'll see how it works out. Um, when we come back, I want to change topics here. This morning, interesting uh, article on the on uh, CNBC. As Wall Street tries to convince senators that new capital rules will hurt Americans as well as banks. And uh, once again, banks. Yeah, we'll talk about Jamie, Jamie Dimon. <laughs> the most out-of-touch guy ever. <laughs> we'll come back and talk about that with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com you know there's a few dates in history that i think a lot of depending on where you were i think there's dates that you can always remember exactly where you were exactly what you were doing on a specific date when some event happened right um 2000, uh, obviously, you know, September 11th, 2001. I know exactly where I was. I was in the office working when, you know, the first tower came up on television, right? Everybody was like, what's going on, right? Remember that date. Uh, 1986, I was walking across the quad in campus to go to the cafeteria for lunch, and everybody comes running out of the cafeteria at lunch to look up in the sky because that was when the Challenger blew up, right? It was all over the news. So you just remember these things. I also remember where I was, the date. And Mike, do you remember this? Where were you when MTV first aired the first video on MTV? Do you remember? I don't know, but I recently saw the first hour of MTV on uh, somewhere on social yep. media. They played that first hour. It was it was kind of fascinating. I was in. So I was basically in college. It was my freshman year of college. I'm in a dorm room with a couple of other buddies and black and white 13 inch television this was back when they had dials <laughs> and rabbit ear antennas <laughs> he had like six channels <laughs> so but anyway we were watching the first video on you know mtv going this is so cool right <laughs> now just to put this in perspective brent put a little thing on my uh, screen this morning he gives me little, these little notes and it just makes me realize how now how old i am when you think about this MTV's debut date was cl is closer to Pearl Harbor than today. <laughs> so, 
if you really want to feel old, there you go. Today being Pearl Harbor Day. And today being Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah. That's right. December 7th, 1941. So, but yeah, now, thanks. I feel really old this morning. <laughs> I was working overnights at a rock station in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. And when that thing debuted, we all of the night jocks were gathered at one of the DJ's house on a couch glued to the TV. So we all watched it together. Y'all watched it realizing that your career had just ended. Video killed the radio star. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and MTV doesn't even look remotely like it did then. Now, right? Well, no, it's it's not MTV no, anymore. It's right? That, garbage. That's garbage. Yeah, reality TV. Yeah, now. it's 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 not reality. <laughs> Unreality TV. <laughs> yeah. It's I, I like when they you know people watch these shows like I can't believe these people's like it's called scripted reality for a reason. It's so. just like <laughs> world wrestling. Yes. You know, WWE (laughs) with music. Exactly. I asked my wife why she watches that stuff. and She's like, but it's so good. I'm like, you know it's not real. Yeah, but it's so good. All right, I'm going to go watch you. Good for what? (laughs) (laughs) She calls it mindless television. It gets her brain brain off of work, right? So so she she watches that. You lose brain cells watching that stuff. Well, you explain that to her, and I will put y'all two in a room and let you deal with that. So (laughs) I I promise you, you won't come out on the better end of that one. I'm afraid of her, too. (laughs) (laughs) No, but y'all haven't met my wife, but my whole office is terrified of my wife. So She's upstairs, isn't she? She is upstairs. She's upstairs right now, as a matter of fact, probably Uh, listening to the show. Yeah. Anyway, um, so on Wednesday, yesterday, um, the CEOs of major banks all congregated in front of Congress to push back on new rules. It's, this is a proposed set of regulations uh, which are aimed at raising the capital requirements for the major banks. Now, of course, um, CEO Jamie, uh, CEO of, of uh, uh, Chase, Jamie Dimon, JP was, Morgan, uh, JP Morgan, JP Morgan Chase. Um, came out was like oh this is terrible this is gonna make everything more expensive for americans and you know it makes it harder on banks but i'm not so sure i agree with mr diamond because mr diamond's obviously protecting his his best interests but you know if we didn't have a situation and mike i'm just asking you this question but you know what jamie diamond says is that the rules would have a predictable and harmful outcome to the economy, markets, businesses of all sizes, and American households. Now, all we're asking pretty much is that they were they hold more capital. And, and I would agree with Jamie that maybe this rule would be harmful for Americans if that every time we had an economic downturn, we didn't have to go bail out the banks. You know, we had to bail out the banks during the financial crisis. Everybody says, okay, well, that'll never happen again. Then we had to bail them out again in March 2020. Um, and we had to bail them out again in March of last year. So maybe if banks were required to hold capital, you know, higher capital levels, we wouldn't have to bail them out every time we had a financial downturn in the economy. Um, you know, it, you know, it, it's just one of those things that has been a continued problem. You know, the other problem we have is that we have these five banks that make up almost sixty percent of our banking. Um, you know, at some point we need to fragment these major banks, um, go back to the rules that we had before. You can either be a broker or you can be a bank. You can't be both. And, you know, once we allowed banks to become investment bankers again, we allowed the we, we removed that barrier, that separation between, you know, between brokerage firms and banks. 
Then we had the financial crisis. We've had you know repeated you know uh, crashes in the economy, the dot com crash, etc. So you know maybe it's time to go back to making banks just do banking. I know it's not as profitable, but if you can choose to be a bank or you can choose to be a brokerage firm, but you can't be both. Look, at the end of the day, we collectively, really, yeah. the Fed and the government have made a decision to bail out banks. And it's not just Jamie Dimon and, and the big banks getting bailed out. It's all banks. The Fed is always running programs, not always, but a lot of time they're running programs that allow the banks to do things that they couldn't do otherwise. Like right now, back in March, when we had a couple of those big banks going down, they introduced the BTFP. FP. I was going to yeah. say D. Bank BT. term. <laughs> bank term funding program. Yeah. Right. Right. Otherwise known as buy the dip. Yeah. Exactly. Program. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 what that a lot what that prevented was a lot of bankruptcies among banks. And I think we have to make a decision: Do we want to basically bring all banks under the arm of the government, or do we want to let them be free market entities? And if we're going to let them be free market entities, which I would argue they should be, when they go under, they go under. The, they don't get bailed out. You know, maybe they get bailed out and the depositors get bailed out, but the executives don't get bailed out. The shareholders, the bondholders should lose everything. Right. And, and if you have that kind of system in place, they would hold enough capital. You wouldn't have to tell them to hold more capital. Right. Well, no, this and this goes back. This and you know, this is specifically the argument that goes back to two thousand and eight during the financial crisis. Um, okay, so if, if you're not aware, let's have let's have a brief history lesson here, real quick. Um, so, in nineteen from nineteen twenty to nineteen twenty nine, the banks were loaning money to the retail mom and pop to invest in the IPOs that the banks were putting out into the market. Of course, this is during the the massive run up in the markets during that period. Of course, 1929, you know, we talk about the great crash. After the crash, markets declined by 85% on the Dow. In 1933, the, we formed the Securities and Exchange Commission in response to this major crash of, of Wall Street. And then in, in 1934, we fund all of the, the, the people to run the Securities and Exchange Commission. You know, part of all that structure was to ensure that those type of activities never happened again, where the banks were on both sides of the transactions that led to this devastation of the average American. And so we said, okay, at that point, you can be a bank or you can be a broker, but you can't be both. And we, and we kept that separation in place until the late 90s. In the late 90s, under the Clinton administration, we removed that barrier because the banks were all whining that in the, in the 90s, brokers firms were making money hand over fist, but all banks could do was give you free checking. Right? So, you know, that's all they could do. And so they were whining about how much money they were losing. It was unfair and the blah, blah, blah. And the Clinton administration said, okay, fine, we'll remove the barrier. You can go back into the game. And it was just a couple of years later that we blew up long-term capital management. Then we had the Enron crisis and then, you know, basically the dot-com crash in 2000. And then we, you know, kept going. And of course we have a financial crisis in 2008. Now, you know, the, the, the reason for the history lesson is, is that as we go through each one of these crises, these major banks that we keep bailing out become larger and larger shares of the of the global banking or the domestic banking system. Today, again, five banks used to make up about 20 percent of the banking system. Now it's 60. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad or that's wrong or anything else, but it certainly puts a lot of power and control centralized into five banks. And they become these, what they call these systemic banks. We've, we've got to have, they're systemically important banks, right? We've got to have them. 
and they can't fail. And now we've put our, ourselves in a position that we have to bail these banks out because if they fail, it'll devastate the economy. But back in, but like Mike said, though, back in 2008, what we should have done is allow J.P. Morgan and Goldman and these firms to go bankrupt. What would have happened? Yes, it would have been hard on the economy for a couple of years, but the, the depositors would have been shelved out to regional banks all around the country. They would have gotten a larger share. So if you were in Washington, the state of Washington, and you were with J.P. Morgan at the time, then your assets would go to some regional bank in that quadrant of the country. If you're in Florida, happen there. So you, you diversify the banking system. The depositors are fine. Like Mike said, we make sure the depositors are okay. Hey, sorry, if you're, if you're invested in J.P. Morgan bonds or invested in, in J.P. Morgan stock, you're going to lose all your money, just like happened with Lehman. But yeah, things kind of suck for a year or so, but then we get back into a much more healthier financial system as we move forward. But again, we haven't made that decision to do that. We haven't allowed that to happen. Now we're in this problem where now the banks are dictating regulations to the government. Come back after the break. We'll wrap this up and we'll talk about his comments on Bitcoin as well, considering what's been going on with Bitcoin lately. Um, we'll talk about that next. Don't go away. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com so welcome back to the show this morning michael leibwitz joining me in studio so so mike you know this is uh just for the break talking a little bit about these kind of new capital rules that the government's trying to push it's called basil three and they're uh, basically would increase banks capital requirements by 25 percent obviously the banks don't like that because that requires them to put additional capital in their books that they can't go invest in markets or securities or investment banking or whatever it is so they certainly don't like it but you know is it really that bad of a thing and you know or is there is there a, a another reason why the government's talking about doing this i i think it is a good thing and i you know they're probably they're doing it in part to protect the banks and ultimately the country and the people. But there's like everything else, there's two sides to the story. Mm -hmm. And what the government is likely trying to do is capital is usually held in the form of high, secure, low risk assets, i.e. U.S. treasuries. So if they can raise capital requirements, they can essentially make banks hold more U.S. treasuries and help fund our debt that keeps going up and up and up. Right. And we've seen the government do that a lot with various capital rules, reserve regulations. They make it advantageous to hold U.S. Treasuries as capital versus other type of assets. And in changing how much those that capital counts versus their capital requirements, that you know they can really push the banks to basically force their investments into U.S. Treasuries and fund this monster of a debt that we have. So there's both sides to the argument. Jay, I don't think Jamie Dimon will ever come out and say that's why they're doing it. Um, so, you know, keep that in mind as you think about this uh, story. Well, and I'll, just one other thing, though, too, is that, you know, would here's the question to ask, right? 
okay, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, you know, et cetera, th those are massive firms. And, and obviously, during the most recent turmoil in the banking system we had back in March, you know, they weren't affected, but we had a lot of, you know, concerns with pretty big banks. I mean, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was a $200 billion bank. Um, Republic Bank was, was very large. Would a higher level of capital requirement for those banks, had that been in place at the time, would it have kept those banks from getting in trouble? No, but what got those banks in trouble were some silly rules they put in place in 2008. To let to keep the banks out of trouble. Basically, in 2008, they told those bank they told all banks that if you plan on holding a bond to maturity or a loan to maturity, you never have to write down the price of the bond. So you know, like we we've seen recently, the price of bonds don't just sit at par. They mm -hmm. they go up, they go down, and in some cases, there were bonds that were 30, 40, 50 cents on the dollar. Fortunately, the banks did not have to report that they had bonds that were 50 cents on the dollar because those losses would have put them out of business. And even today, a lot of banks would be under if they had to report the value of those. But what did happen was they didn't hedge it. Why hedge it if the price isn't moving up or down? Some banks didn't hedge it, especially smaller regional banks. And sure enough, deposits start leaving the banks. The banks have to sell those assets and recognize the 50 cent loss on a bond and it puts them out of business. Now, now was J.P. Morgan affected? J.P. Morgan probably benefited because they picked up uh, regional, region, one, you know, one of the big one yeah. regional bank at a discount. And with uh, the, sorry, I'm sorry, Republic Bank, Republic Bank, and with the support of the Fed and Treasury, so so they won. They're a big winner. But had they had nothing happened, it probably would have spiraled and it would have hurt J.P. Morgan mm -hmm. because they do have exposure to those big banks and they, they have a similar problem. They're probably much better about hedging some of that risk. But eventually, you know, the banking system is like dominoes and mm -hmm. eventually it's going to catch up with the big boys. Just takes a little time. Let, let's switch gears here real quick because we just got a few minutes left here. I, I thought this was interesting. Obviously, Bitcoin has had a huge rally here. We were about you know sixteen thousand you know last year, got up to around twenty thousand, and all of a sudden, over the last couple of weeks, it shot up to around forty thousand on uh, on Bitcoin. And of course, this has really gotten the media's attention now, and all of a sudden. Uh, we're now getting, you know, for for a while there, we had talked about here on the show is like, you know, what happened to all the laser eyes on Twitter? Because <laughs> there was everybody on Twitter had laser eyes about you know, about Bitcoin. They all disappeared with the crash. Not surprising. And now they're back. And we're now having people come back, you know, now it's 100,000, you know, by the end of next year on Bitcoin. You got to get in now. Um and, and so I thought it was interesting because this always kind of happens is every time Bitcoin shows a little bit of life that, you know, you get the whole kind of speculative Reddit crowd comes back out for, you know, chasing Bitcoin. I thought this was interesting because uh, Jamie Dimon uh, yesterday uh, talked about Bitcoin uh, in particular, saying that I've always been deeply opposed. This is his quote, not mine. I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, etc. Um the only true use for it is for criminals, drug traffickers, money laundering, and tax avoidance. If I was the government, I'd close it down. Now, this is obviously going to fire up a lot of Bitcoin people, but <laughs> I just, you know, I thought it was interesting because, again, this was, you know, from him in particular, because he went through a phase there for a while that he was open to having Bitcoin actually trade, you know, through JP Morgan. You could buy or sell it through accounts. And, and now he's come back out and made this other. This other, uh, you know, point. Now, there's there's some credibility to his point. I mean, you know, look what's going on with Sam Bankman-Fried with FTX. 
Um, we have money laundering going on with uh, Binance. So, you know, there's certainly a case that, you know, his statement is not untrue. Um, there's been a lot of fraud, money laundering, criminal activities that has occurred with Bitcoin. Um, and it's still trying to find its footing uh, in the world of, of what it is. And there's really not an application yet for Bitcoin uh, to any great degree. I mean, again, if you want to use it's great to own Bitcoin, but if you want to use it, you've got to convert it back to dollars to, to buy stuff with. You know, there were a few attempts where people say hey, you could buy a car with Bitcoin or whatever. But it's so volatile that they had to back out of it. Again, you know, I can't sell a car today. And then the value of my what I receive for the car today is worth 20% less tomorrow. That's just not viable for a manufacturer or for a, a producer. So, you know, it's, it's Bitcoin certainly has its challenges. But, you know, I just wanted to get your view on on uh, on Jamie's remarks yesterday and what you thought. So, first of all, there's been a lot of fraud with U.S. dollars as well. Well, of course. A, a lot more than Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. But look, if you're Jamie Dimon, what is Bitcoin? It's an alternative to the banking system. Yeah. So Jamie Dimon is like, no, we shouldn't have Bitcoin. That's an alternative to me making money, uh, to me ruling the banking world. So, of course, he's going to come out. And he's been, he's been against it in the past, too. Um, but they are big investors in blockchain. And, um, you know, there is a difference between uh, subtle difference, but a difference between blockchain and Bitcoin yeah. and cryptocurrencies. So uh, his remarks don't surprise me at all. And, and I guess, if anything, it strengthens the case to own to own Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency because mm -hmm. it, that's exactly what it is. It's something outside of the banking system, which is a. Uh, a hedge, an alternative, you know. Um, I personally don't any, own any cryptocurrency, but hearing remarks like that, maybe I should. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, again, you know, the, the pro I own, so, you know, just full disclosure, I own some. Um, and I've owned it since 2018. Uh, I started out, I just bought some as a test because I wanted to learn how the market works. And, and this is how you, you know, how you learn to invest is you buy something and watch it go up and down and what affects it. So I bought some in 2018 and still own it. Um, you know, I was going to sell it and then I just forgot about it. Honestly, <laughs> did you, did you remember your code? Yeah, no, I your didn't. Key. Actually, I did not. <laughs> I actually had to go through a whole rigmarole to get, to get my key back. Um, but anyway, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, from the standpoint, you know, the, the problem, you know, for me as, as an investor. So, you know, people ask us like, why don't you, why don't you recommend Bitcoin to your clients? I, I don't because there's no fundamentals behind the currency, right? There's nothing that supports it. You know, it is the ultimate fiat currency. Um, what is, you know, when people talk about the dollar, say, oh, the dollar's fiat. Well, there's, it just means that we can print it and there's no reserve sitting behind it, right? It's not tied to gold or it's not tied to, um, you know, oil or whatever. But, you know, the U.S. government has a lot of assets, land, buildings, you know, oil reserves, et cetera. There's a lot of assets behind the U.S. that does back up the full faith and credit of the currency. There's nothing sitting behind Bitcoin except the function of Mike owns some and I own some and we want to trade and we're going to set a price at which we trade something. So from a speculative asset, it's great. You know, the one thing that needs to happen um, to make a recommendation to clients to own it is that it needs to be tied to something ultimately. Um, you know, we need to see an adoption of the blockchain technology, which Mike was talking about. You know, the thing that Jamie Dimon should fear is not Bitcoin, it's the blockchain technology. So, you know, and all of a sudden, Mike and I can do a real estate transaction via blockchain. We don't need banks anymore. Right. 
we don't need we don't need a, a third party to intervene in transactions. That's terrible for banks. So blockchains is is very dangerous for the banks, and the one thing that they shouldn't want, and they and one thing they don't want. Well, and that's the one big thing they are invested in. J.P. Yeah. Morgan has big investments mm-hmm. in blockchain because I think they see the future as you can exchange assets anywhere, anytime, anytime. with anyone. Yeah, and so twenty four seven markets, twenty four seven real estate transactions, twenty four seven you know, uh, transactions of buying and selling stuff from goods and services, it's, it's, it's a game changer. And the question will be, you know, who ultimately dominates that. And obviously, you know, at, at the end of the day, JP Morgan wants to have, would want, in that environment, JP Morgan will want to have their own cryptocurrency of whatever it is. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that, you know, we continue to see pushback and and you don't see these articles until you see a big spike in Bitcoin, right? <laughs> you know, this, I haven't seen a big, I haven't seen a cryptocurrency article in probably two years. Or laser eyes, <laughs> yeah, and, and laser eyes, all and, gone. and now they're all back. Right. So look, uh, like I said earlier today, you know, uh, Bitcoin's had a great run here over the last you know month. Um, it's very overbought. You're you're more, you're in three standard deviations above moving averages. So if you're long, it's a great time to take some profits. You'll probably get an opportunity to buy buy Bitcoin back at you know between thirty and thirty five thousand. Um, just you know, give it some time to to work off some of the overbought conditions, and we'll see what happens. I mean, again, you know, I, I own it. I don't plan on selling it. We'll and maybe in ten years, we'll see where we are. There you go, Mike. Thanks so much for coming in today. Yep, great uh, to be what here. What time's your plane leave? <laughs> Not soon enough. <laughs> All right. We'll be back tomorrow, of course, for the next Real Investment Show with uh, Danny Ratliff, Richard Rosso here on Friday for Financial Financial Fitness Friday. And of course, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send us your questions, comments, emails, whatever you need to have. More than happy to help you with it. realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day.